Hi and welcome to Art Alarm, a podcast dedicated to conversations on visual culture with me Kamaini. On today's episode, we have with us Shukla Savant and Annapurna Garimela, founder trustees of the Culture Workers Support Trust, an organization set up in 2019 to and I'm quoting them directly, spread awareness among culture workers about their rights and responsibilities. As someone who has worked in the art industry for a decade, I often seethe at the lack of support and protections that I see peers in other fields having access to. I too, dear listener, fantasize about running away to do an MBA. Culture work is unpredictable and unique to its practitioners in ways that most other kinds of work is not. And certainly it is carried out in circumstances very different from even other types of labor which is also singular perhaps culture work whether visual textual performance based musical or digital uh, i've probably left out some other format is a lot more irregular in its configurations and devoid of many of the traditional comforts of a job like say a skill commensurate salary band that's agreed upon within the industry or material recognition of the value one brings to an organization or employer it is the og gig economy on crack basically the culture industry also operates according to and perpetuates socioeconomic stratifications and injustices the comedy stereotype of you know rich kids running art galleries usually badly exists for a reason as i researched for this episode i also came to realize that very little research has been done on art workers in india I'd like to name check art geographer Christine Etobid for her academic explorations of this topic and specifically give a shout out to the Legal Handbook for the Artist Community in India that she co-authored with lawyer Tejshree Savara. On the whole, even the acknowledgement of different kinds of roles in the industry is elusive while artists and curators get their due. What about the artisans or craftspersons assisting them, helping them realize their vision? or writers administrators publicists conservators technicians and tradespersons with expertise in fashioning installing and activating art before we begin i'd like to quickly note that we're not using the term culture industry in quite the sense that the frankfurt school theorists did back in the 1940s um that original usage you know as a critique of mass culture being an accessory of consumer capitalism still holds theoretical potency of course and um, continues to make us aware of how wealth and profits govern culture making uh, however in, on this episode of art lab we uh, use culture industry a bit more loosely um, to refer to the sphere of relations and infrastructures in which cultural labor occurs now let me introduce you to uh, my guests shukla and annapurna Shukla Savant is a visual artist and professor of visual studies School of Arts and Aesthetics Jawaharlal Nehru University New Delhi where she has taught since 2001 she taught me as well actually prior to joining JNU Shukla taught for 12 years at the Department of Fine Arts and Art Education uh, Jamia Millia Islamia New Delhi she has also lectured as visiting faculty at the Bhavdaji Lal Museum Mumbai and at the National Gallery of Modern Art New Delhi Shukla has 10 solo shows to her credit and has published various catalog essays and contributed chapters in books on contemporary Indian art. She is a founding member of the Indian Printmakers Guild and was a working group member 
of Khoj International Artists Association between 1998 and 2005. She is a founding trustee of CWSD. Anupurna Garimela is an art historian and designer. Her research focuses on late medieval Indic architecture and the history and practices of vernacular, visual and built cultures in India after independence. She is one of the founder trustees of Culture Workers Support Trust or CWST. She also heads Jackfruit Research and Design Bangalore and Hyderabad, an organization with a specialized portfolio of design, research and curation. She is also managing trustee of Art Resources and Teaching Trust. an organization dedicated to research archiving and pedagogy in the visual and built arts on today's episode of artilab we discuss the modes and methods by which labor in india's vast culture sector can start to organize and collectivize how stakeholders across public and private sectors can come together for worker oriented solutions to entrenched problems and how forms of workplace violence including gender and caste based discrimination or harassment such as that embodied by the me too movement in the art world cannot be delinked from broader issues of labor rights such as wage security and equitable contracts we also discuss how in the network capital dominated industries of the arts legislative and juridical processes are necessary to enforce fair work conditions welcome to the show annapurna and shukla it's great to have you with us Great to have you with us too. <laughs> hi, hi. Thank you for having us. Before we continue, I'd like to let our listeners know how to access the material accompanying our conversation. To view the images and other material being referenced and discussed in the episode, click on the link in the show notes to access the guide. You can also find the link to the guide for each episode in our Instagram captions and tweets. I'm really glad that uh, this has worked out, and that you've been you both been able to give us time, uh, particularly during this terrible period. So I just thought we could begin by discussing uh, the work that CWST hopes to do, um, because I think most of our uh, listeners may not know what exactly the organization is or. uh what its uh, mandate or vision is so do you want to just take us through that so the culture workers support trust uh, right now comprises of about uh, six of us uh, and uh, we uh, came together in 2019 because there were multiple issues that had come up uh, in the wake of the me too movement and uh, besides that uh, you know there were a number of conversations that people were having about not just the me too movement but also about the kind of unequal relationships that exist in the field of culture work and uh, so first we of course set up this trust and that trust was really an impromptu move because uh, there was a legal intervention that we wished to make uh, in one case and uh, nonetheless it was a kind of an accretion of multiple events that had happened in the past and uh, attempts to intervene in the field of uh, how uh, culture workers were being treated and at least as far as the school of arts and aesthetics is concerned these conversations had been going on for some time uh, there were students like uh, arnika for instance who had already organized a workshop around artist contracts f- several months before the me too movement even started right right and uh, so uh, so one was aware of the kind of problems uh, people in the field were facing and uh, when we came together we uh, wanted to uh, you create a platform that would be a kind of a nodal point where multiple 
uh, organizations across the country to put link together a kind of an alliance, a culture workers support alliance. That's what we really felt eventually. That's what the shape that this organization would take. So uh, we've had consultative meetings. Uh, we've had uh, made some interventions where we've seen uh, difficult situations arise for artists. We've also, uh, you know, been trying to collect uh, material on the different kinds of contracts that can shape relationships in the field of culture work. Uh, we've also we've been thinking of organizing panel discussions and. Uh, workshops. I mean, yeah, so that's just a kind of a brief outline of what we've done till now. But uh, the idea is to create some kind of uh, an artist union uh, along the lines of what uh, the uh, film world has done, uh, like uh, Sinta, which uh, is also kind of an umbrella organization that brings uh, several different other unions together uh, to create a more equitable space for people in this field. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, one thing that we, uh, Shukla would also like to add is that our goal is to be um, pan-Indian, across India. Mm -hmm. But And right now we're just focused on the visual arts. Right. Uh, but eventually it would be really important to have a more integrated approach with other art forms and art practices. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's visual art because the people who are currently the trustees, that's uh, Shukla Savant is the settler. I am the managing trustee. Uh, Lokesh Khodke, Shafali Jain, Sindura D. Manjunath, and uh, Vidyun Sabhani are also there. And But we all come from the field of either making, curating, teaching, and researching and writing art, visual art or built art, architectural history, or um, these sort of things, craft. So this is the, our area of expertise or, and also familiarity. Expertise is maybe sometimes a little uh, exalted word, but I like the word familiarity because it's a little more humble. Uh, so this is our, our area of familiarity. And we know in many ways the nitty gritties of what it means to work in this arena. Each, each form of culture work has its own complexities and uh, possibilities and limitations. So in, to respect that, we would need to have other people here Right. Also, I think the range of people who are the trustees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we, we are located in Delhi, Hyderabad, and Bangalore, and then we're hoping to um, involve people from other parts of the country into this. And we hope that people gain that sense of community and also that sense of um, that desire to change things that's specific to various locations, because what the conditions that prevail, let's say, in a city are not the same in a in a small town or, or even in a village, nor the, the kinds of uh, opportunities and questions that come up in a city like Delhi, which is so intensely, uh, has so intensely aggregated uh, culture work is different from, let's say, a, a place like, um, I don't know, Coimbatore or someplace like that. So it would be nice, uh, however network we are, we still acknowledge that there are uh, deep differences in the way that things are being handled across the country. And there's also deep differences in the different kinds of uh, visual art that are being made, right? Like people who make things in collectives have a very different uh, experience of things like contracts and copyright and work load fairness and timings and all those kinds of things from somebody who works in an office situation, such as an art gallery or a museum and 
those kinds of things. And uh, I think uh, there are no ready-made answers for everything. So part of CWSD's work should be to begin to even open up the, the arena for, for thinking and for conceptualizing the differences, not to create sameness, but to actually accept differences and work with them to create community and also like equity. Equity is really important. So that that's, I mean, you know, that's a, those are really comprehensive, um, you know, answers to the question of what the future for CS, CWST might look like. Since you spoke about, you know, difference and um, diversity in the, even even among the trustees, at least in terms of their geographical locations, Annapurna, I do want to ask, like, in terms of the membership structure, could you give us, shed some light on how you hope for that to evolve? And also in terms of the leadership or administrative uh, positions, what kind of diversity or policies for inclusion are you hoping to implement? Because again, as we know with all sectors, but particularly in the culture sector, um, you know, axes of marginalization like class and caste and gender, uh, because it's an informal sector, they become more pronounced. So, and there are specific issues and challenges that, uh, you know, people in those sociopolitical, with those sociopolitical identities have to face. So do you want to talk talk about how you hope for that inclusion or diversity or form of the CWST, how it might address that, those inequalities? So we've had multiple discussions about how we go about creating a membership base because uh, we're very clear that we don't want this to be an organization that... Uh, is supported by any kind of corporate interest because I think that in some sense will already pitch the yeah. organization into one uh, area, uh, you know, one kind of uh, uh, playing field. So we really want this to be a membership-based organization where we keep uh, it very low, the entrance membership fee very low. And uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, because there will be certain kinds of uh, uh, recurring expenses we'll incur, mm. or, you know, whether it's legal fees, whether it is, uh, you know, just having a Zoom license to hold meetings and panel discussions uh, and things like that. But uh, I think uh, we are very clear that uh, this has to be a community organization where people feel a part of uh, the organization uh, in every sense. And that whoever runs this organization also has to, uh, this has to be uh, on a rotation basis. We could also introduce perhaps a kind of an elected model, uh, you know, a representative uh, platform. And these are things that we are thinking through right now. And we're only very clear about what we don't want to do, right? Yeah. So, it's, so and will you have like reservations as part of the so structure? Are, yeah. So we are very clear about that as well, that we have to have representation from the entire spectrum of, uh, you know, society. And there are certain constitutional uh, provisions for reservations, right? And we, we feel that those have to be implemented yeah. in not just spirit, but also on the ground. They have to be implemented in the way the whole organization is structured. And right now, of course, we are collating material together. And I said the first, uh, you know, at the first instance, the trust was uh, something that uh, was, you know, that happened in a very spontaneous kind of a manner with, you know, people with, who were <laughs> in one location and we had to re register the trust and we were from diverse uh, geographical locations and also across uh, diverse social spectrums. I'd like to stress that. So this is really what we've been thinking through. Uh, we want, even in the consultative process, we've uh, had many different people uh, contribute to the conversation about how this organization should proceed. 
and uh, in the future as well after we've collated a lot of material because we're right now looking at how such organizations across the world work and function so whether these are organizations from south africa or from you know the united states uh, we've been examining their constitutions uh, we've been looking at how they function and we've collected a lot of material together uh, which we are studying and we hope to table it in a much bigger consultative meeting right right um so uh in terms of the let's say the constitution of the trust itself of the organization itself you're hoping to at some point make it public right and um invite comments i imagine absolutely uh, to make the process transparent as well yeah so i mean in the sense that we plan to have a series of consultative meetings because we also know that there will be people who have opinions that are completely divergent from ours we do have some kind of uh, you know mm-hmm. a common ground we believe in creating kind of an equitable world and yeah uh, our politics may differ isn't uh, a right wing politics for instance right so uh, even the conversations that we have we want to ensure that uh, it is people yeah. who really think genuinely about creating a more equitable world right right Right, I guess it's uh, like Rawls said, you know, the concept of justice versus the conceptions of justice. So you can have different uh, solutions, but I think the, the the abstract form, as you said, in this case, equity needs to kind of be agreed on. um yeah. but um i think that one of the things that i'm also interested in is you know you mentioned different models right that you're looking at even uh, abroad and as as one must because there are more maybe more mature uh, contexts uh, for these sort of uh, formations and organizations elsewhere uh, and within india you mentioned the cinta which has been around since the 50s and i was all, and you also mentioned the last time we spoke the indian association of designers you know i was looking at both of their uh, vision statements and uh, with the iid i sort of came across you know this sort of attempt to also for um, contribute to policy for consideration by the government um so i was wondering if that's something that you think that the that you know this the trust might uh, eventually move towards because i mean also why i'm asking this question is that i uh, looked at, looked up a couple of in, uh, international labor organization papers on culture sector and media sector guidelines across the world and somehow india does not seem to feature very prominently and already you have a situation where labor laws are not a priority in this country at all so i'm wondering how you see your relationship to policy intervention or that mode of um, advocating for members So I I think we are interested in policy and impacting policy. Um I think that any culture work support trust um worth its salt has to be engaged with policy work too. I I think that policy being engaged with policy work means that you have to be willing to have the the openness and maybe the flexibility and the intelligence to work within the system and with the system that means the system that the government organizations such as let's say let the academies have or relief programs or museums or even in the commercial sector which would be galleries and stuff why i say this is um and why we all feel i think to some extent up you know in degrees differences in degrees not in substance is that the number of culture workers in india is vast it's huge <laughs> but the kind of infrastructure there is for structuring work for creating a spaces for uh, impacting the conditions of work are very few for contemplating and 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 influencing the conditions of work are very few 
And if we don't engage with all of these different realms, government, commercial, not-for-profit, and even one-on-one, because the biggest infrastructure in India is personal relationships for culture work. Let's be realistic. It's a one-on-one and academic as well. So all these spaces need to be engaged with and policy needs to be very intricately and deftly engaged with. Yeah, because it's also, you know, like it until something is enshrined in some enforceable in some enforceable terms, uh, it becomes very difficult to maintain the momentum for, for it affecting the lives of people, in this case, work culture workers. Yeah, I mean, in the sense, if you look at the infrastructure, for instance, or employment opportunities, for instance, yeah. at the end of the day, we are taxpayers. And all the institutional infrastructure that exists in this country, the multiple Lalitkala Academy venues, for instance, that exist, right? Yeah. The museums, etc. I mean, unless and until we engage with them, and if there are any kind of changes that have to be brought in, they can only be brought in from within and by contesting and challenging things that you think are going wrong. Right. Right. So if we abdicate all responsibility and say that we're not going to engage with these institutions at all, in some sense, uh, we are letting go of a very, very valuable uh, resource, right? And so how do we actually now, because that's actually what has happened, the academies, uh, for instance, uh, and also the various, uh, you know, zonal cultural centers, uh, they have vast infrastructure. Right. And so how do we actually bring in artists who are living in small towns, living in, uh, you know, uh, cities outside the four metros? There are very active art worlds here as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. It's just that uh, we don't have conversations. We don't link up with each other. But uh, I think some of the kind of uh, art educational connections uh, that have happened because of multiple workshops that have been conducted due to, you know, because of various uh, platforms uh, and also because, you know, I am in. Uh, the academy and I've been associated with multiple institutions um, and these these were central universities that had students from all over the country coming in. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a very vast net and I think we need to mobilize that uh, and uh, work with people within these institutions as well. Right. You know, I think you raise a really interesting point regarding policy as also being something that's a result of conversations with public institutions like the Lalit Kala Academy or like uh, public museums, for instance, and also art schools and educational institutes, which are state funded, for example. But I'm also interested to know what kind of relationships it's possible for the trust to form with private institutions like, again, private museums, galleries and other um, cultural organizations that are privately owned. Shukla, I really think you should tell the story of the gallerist who wanted to have a publicity video made at no charge. Because I think that that's an important kind of, it's a good example to point to the way in which the relationship between um, capital owners and everybody else who's operating in this political economy of culture really is. There's such a stark difference in equity and also almost no understanding of how you know the material conditions of culture workers and art workers across various strata really uh, really are so you know the thing is that if you want to bring in diversity into conversations around culture and enrich it you you know from multiple perspectives you have to understand that the young people who are coming into universities getting the requisite qualifications to you know, write intellig- intelligently about culture or, you know, work within gallery space or work as artists uh, or within the craft sector. First and foremost, you have to pay a living wage. 
Uh, I think a lot of the people who run private institutions, uh, you know, we were talking about that earlier, already sit on a lot of accumulated capital. They have no idea about how young people struggle, what it takes to just rent a room in a city, right? To even have the necessary infrastructure to participate, a computer or a laptop or a scanner or a camera costs money. Uh, you want a person to do work from home, for instance. Uh, if you want that person to work from home as well, that person will you know, require a certain amount of infrastructure and that requires investment, right? Uh, for example, you know, you want a person to make a publicity film for your gallery, but you don't realize how much it costs to hire an edit suite. Yeah. Right. And then you yeah. uh, offer pittance to people who come from smaller towns to stay in the city and, uh, you know, work for you as uh, managers, gallery managers or programmers or whatever. But uh, you have no idea how much your groceries per week cost. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like they're really out of touch completely out of touch I mean, it's really shocking that people don't understand how difficult it is and if you genuinely believe in creating an ecosystem and you want to invest in an ecosystem that brings in opinions and points of view from across the social spectrum then you're going to have to support it yeah right and uh, that's what is not happening unfortunately and you know i used to joke with my colleagues as well that you know most of us <laughs> in fact uh, have lived within six square kilometers of south delhi most of the curators of a certain generation also lived within six square kilometers of each other in Delhi. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that in no way represents what this country is all about. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you actually, you know, make the space a more inclusive one? And if it's inclusive, it's going to be more interesting. Yeah. I mean, I also think right? it's like that George Carlin joke, right? It's one big club and we ain't in it. So I think like <laughs> it's that logic. But I, I completely hear you and I've struggled myself as a, you know, culture worker, as a writer uh, whose uh, craft is not valued by the market at all uh, in India. And, you know, you, you really see the difference when you start contributing. At least I've seen the difference when I started contributing abroad. People can legitimately at least sustain a life just by writing. They can actually be freelance writers in, you know, in ecologies in the US and the UK, in Europe. Whereas in India, in South Asia, it's impossible. It doesn't matter how good you are because the market just doesn't value that labor. And also, like, I think this also brings me to a more historical question. And I think that you sort of hit upon it when you spoke about this kind of generational shift as well. You know, I think one of the things that I'm curious about is how much and, you know, both Annapurna and you have been in positions where you've seen that shift. So I think that, you know, both of you will weigh in on this. There's definitely been a casualization of, like a marked casualization of labor, right? Since the 90s, since the post-liberalization period. You can actually see that difference play out in the culture sector as well. The precariousness of labor has increased. You know, uh, this informal structure has only become more prevalent. And with the culture sector historically, throughout centuries, it's been a patronage-based model, right? What Annapurna said, that basically those interpersonal relationships constitute a kind of infrastructure themselves. So in this kind of patronage-based ecology, where you, which is already circumscribed by caste relations, patriarchy, this kind of massive class difference that you just hinted at, how do you begin to have these conversations even? That's my question. I know it's a broad question. It's, I, I think it's important for you guys to address it. I, I'll say something. So I'm gonna take you on a slightly different tangent in order to come to the place you want me to come to. 
say, if you think about before 1991, where exactly was there this kind of culture work? It's non-existent. So for us to talk about the casualization of labor as a recent phenomenon is to misunderstand what existed before 1991. Uh, there weren't these kinds of private museums. There weren't these kinds of opportunities that were coming from artists going abroad and showing abroad. I mean, very few Indian artists had the kinds of studios to employ the amount of labor, creative labor that uh, is now employed in the bigger artist studios, right? The more established and financially successful artist studios. So what we have is a situation where for the last 20 years, we are looking at the slow, in some sense, under imagination of an art world where it's only casual, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? It's there, it's, 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 it didn't become casual, it's being imagined as a casual world, right? It went from being, let's say, um, artist-driven, network-based, not necessarily. See, the slippage between network-based and patronage-based is very frequent, but they're not the same. Mm -hmm. So people's networks can come from their art school backgrounds, their shared pedagogical experiences. Mm -hmm. They could come from the fact that for example, they come from the same place in, uh, like in, and come to a metropolitan location, like from Andhra Pradesh to Hyderabad or something like that, like rural Andhra Pradesh, right? So this slippage from having a network and moving into a patronage is not something of the past, it's of the present. This is, in some sense, how a network stops being relatively hierarchy-free or a limited hierarchy and starts gaining hierarchy. So some people want to control the network. So that's because the network itself is a kind of capital. It is capital to be able to leverage creative labor up and down the chain. We know so many situations where a foreign curator comes to India and they call them helicopter visits where they land in Bangalore or more frequently Bombay or Delhi. And then like one or two key people in that network bring together a lot of other people who are at a site. And it's, this is how the patronage network evolves. It's a completely contemporary phenomenon. It's not just like feudal caste and feudal this and feudal that. No, I don't think I no, meant no, that I at all. I think I I'm that. very much, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I very much mean it in the sense that you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, but it's also, it's also uh, about the kind of art languages which are current, right? So that, it's hard to speak about caste and art languages, but we have to find ways. Certain kinds of art forms become current, certain kinds of, it's beyond like taste and style. I actually want to see it a little bit more complexly than that. The second thing I wanted to say was that when somebody who has a lot of fiduciary capital, like monetary, hardcore, hard cash, and property. So property is a big thing, right? Like if you want to show art, you want to showcase art, you want to store art, you got to have a piece, a big piece of land or be able to afford a piece of land that the center of whatever you think is the center that you want to be at, right? So, but there's other kinds of capital. That is the capital that a person who knows how to make a good video has. Somebody who is able to put together a set of social relationships to make things happen. The, I think the problem in our world is that Many of us, including me, I've gone through this experience. We don't value the capital we have. And when we begin to value it and we put it into a context where somebody who has hard cash 
we don't know how to get them to understand this as a very serious resource. It's not just resource, it's capital that you have to learn to engage with in order for your capital to happen too, right? To have that kind of complex distribution of uh, valuation. I think that's the word. So where, where would I learn this? I wasn't taught this at art school. <laughs> I wasn't taught this at grad school. I learned it from suffering humiliating situations and being given some very beautiful opportunities as well, uh, like some genuine care and respect and, and also having the responsibility of caring and respecting for people who were younger to me or were in a different realm of the art world or doing other kinds of culture work. I'd like to stop there. I'm sure Kushukla will have lots to add. Um, yeah, so in the sense that, uh, you know, when you think of the amount of time that a person spends acquiring a certain set of skills. Today, you have university programs and, you know, people do their infant PhDs. They spend about, uh, you know, 10 or 12 odd years acquiring those skill sets. Now, if you take, for example, people in the sciences and think of how much uh, a young graduate gets paid for doing entry-level work, are our cultural institutions uh, thinking of the humanities disciplines in the same way? Because uh, we think they are extremely uh, valuable. Uh, we think that uh, culture work adds, you know, the social sciences, the entire spectrum of social sciences has a lot to offer to society, right? And so unless and until people who do have the capital learn to understand that this is very, very important work. Uh, I think we are not being able to position the kind of work that we do uh, in the field. I think as an organization, we need to amplify what culture work actually does and what it can do and contribute to society. This is something that we really need to speak about over and over again. And that's the only way it is going to be given the kind of value that is uh, that it deserves, right? And we've seen that happen across the world. Think, for example, of uh, the museum cultures in other parts of the world, right? Think, for example, and I'm not talking about the Middle East, but say, for example, Singapore. That has built up a huge infrastructure of uh, museums. Uh, again, we're not talking about a phenomena that Kavita has recently spoken of that happened in China, which could well happen over here, which is that museums were really about grabbing real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And most of these are museums that are empty shelves today. Right. So uh, so it isn't as if culture work is something that has to sit in some kind of, uh, you know, a brick and mortar kind of a location. There are multiple different kinds of avenues through which, uh, you know, you can now uh, create, you know, interesting interventions. But uh, we of course, we need the support. Right. We need the support uh to have these conversations, to uh, you know, think, for example, of just what the Khan Academy has done, right? And so here is one person who is, uh, you know, who's passionate about mathematics and the arts at the same time, and he is able to then build uh, something on and scale up something like simple video lessons that he was doing, and uh, you have support given to him uh, by a, you know a, a corporate entity, and all the knowledge that's been produced has now been made accessible free across the world, right? So can we think of people contributing to creating those kind of platforms and will they pay scholars uh, well enough uh, for them to have, you know, to be able to make that kind of a contribution? So the Culture Workers Support Trust does want to, you know, amplify these voices 
and uh, also you know uh, as far as uh, creating equity in the field is concerned i think even um, museums and private organizations etc need to know that they need to have uh, to have a good productive uh, and intelligent workforce they need to also increase the support and give them the support that's due uh, for their skill sets right so i mean uh, you know when you talk about Annapurna is right that the art world has changed a lot in the last two decades. Uh, when we were young, there was there was nothing but the Lalit Kala Academy, and nonetheless, you know, you had galleries that you could hire, and we visibilized ourselves by you know doing exhibitions. We would travel with our artworks in trains uh, to different parts of the country, uh, to our neighboring countries, Bangladesh, Nepal, etc. and then of course setting up coach uh, initially uh, was uh, something that uh, engaged me for 7 years uh, and then uh, of course creating infrastructure in universities right the school of arts and aesthetics is also something that one got an opportunity to shape from the beginning but uh, with the kind of increasing uh, you know uh, gig economy uh, that uh, has created its own set of issues uh, because uh, people don't have stable work uh, their work is extremely precarious uh, and uh, people find themselves very vulnerable and sometimes i feel that because of this people also hold back right uh, because uh, the people who own uh, the capital in some sense aren't willing to let go of what they've already uh, put together for example suppose a young person uh, wishes to write uh, or do an exhibition that's critical of a collection that a person may possess will will uh, such a museum allow it in the first place right but just by producing a kind of a critical text you may even alter the kind of uh, canonical understanding of art that we have because that's what happens you know when young people come up with a different perspectives when a more inclusive art world is created you get many more different kinds of opinions uh, you know being aired and that that's exactly what we need right now right and uh, so uh, even when we look at the different kinds of private organizations that have come up uh, some of them have been you know they've also had very short lives themselves right and uh, is that what they wish to do uh, do they wish to leave behind a lasting legacy you know this is something that they need to understand as well and that can only happen and that lasting legacy can only happen when a kind of a critical infrastructure is also you know is something that they also support an independent critical infrastructure is what they also support hmm. i mean i also think so i mean two or three things from you know based on both what both of you just said just to take off from your last point i mean the fact that there is barely any sort of critical autonomous context in which to even receive art let's say in the form of a magazine you know apart from say maybe art india or to some extent mark you do and this is over like so many decades right and take on art take on art take on art yeah but i mean where is where is criticism really appearing in on the indian art scene so there's no scope for any kind of critique and it's one of the you know criticisms that i have that actually it's a completely curator and artist driven space so you don't have that kind of independent uh, energy where people can really uh, challenge the sort of canon or even the discourse that is being set by a certain group of people so i think that this question of the establishment is part of what i was getting at when i framed the question in my original comments in terms of our patronage based model because it does seem a bit like there has been a you know a, a sort of mutation from from the feudal to the neoliberal right the fundamental structures and hierarchies have been changed it's not like there was some halcyon day before the liberalization era when 
there was a lot of diversity or like a lot of there was a lot of enabling or or empowering structures within the firmament but it's not as though those exist now anyway there's no systemic change and the other thing is also like yeah what you said about you know symbolic capital social capital we know that those things are of course very important part of it is capital accrued in spaces like you know baroda or jnu for example or any of the premier art schools or you know department art departments visual culture visual art departments in the country but yeah i just think like it's also inextricable from all of those things like property ownership land ownership and um, you know the kind of aesthetic configuration that gets determined by by that material capital right i mean i'm also thinking of this in the context of for instance uh, the cwst sort of being able to bring under its ambit could it bring under its ambit a range of practitioners right like at what point do you make the distinction between an artist and an artisan um are people who are uh, for example working in artist studios often you know actually making the work based on the con- concept or design that the artist has issued how what kind of power do they have in this equation like their names aren't even part of the work when it's exhibited right or for instance freelancers or for instance researchers on art and visual culture who actually are part of the more a sort of an existing academic institutionality or infrastructure so yeah i'm just saying that there are all of these things at play as well but you and in like you know it's an aesthetic question as well like what kind of aesthetic does property ownership generate right so there are artists who have uh, over a period of time matured as uh, thinking persons about you know how they think about their own work and their own practice so, so say for example what does acknowledging a number of people who work with you in the projects that you do mean to the people who have helped you or participated in the project giving them credits means it's a way of acknowledging their skills so that if they you know if they wish to apply elsewhere they can say that you know i've assisted so and so i've done this thing and that enhances their employability right that's what cinema industry does it acknowledges every single input yeah. and we've seen for example neelima shake for instance you know she gives credit yeah. to all the people who participate in the kind of projects that she does and it's by highlighting these kind of uh, practices uh, that we can open up conversations and also make people maybe you know make them aware that this would be the fair thing to do mm. right uh, i mean in the sense that uh, that's also one of the reasons why we're looking at asinta as uh, an as one of the organizations from we from which we can draw upon but uh besides that i think it's uh, also important to understand that there are multiple arts uh, organizations and collectives uh in uh, places for instance in the northeast uh, you know we know that for example there's a collective called the bluebird collective which uh, a number of young artists from uh, the northeast have recently initiated right there are also uh, you know uh, there's this organization that we came across quite recently which is not a formally registered organization called art inside this is a kind of a self help group that came together some years ago a couple of years ago and were active during the pandemic in trying to just mobilize uh, artists to come together and there are multiple such organizations that are working outside the museum infrastructure outside uh, you know any kind of so most of the support comes from uh, community leadership uh, solidarity economy somebody may have a house somebody may have some equipment most of it is uh, you know put together just for that project uh, so there are many hundreds of such things happening right but we're also talking about people who need to earn a livelihood right so there are, there is this kind of an art ecosystem but what about livelihoods right 
So this is something that we need to understand that uh, there are also people who graduate from art schools and uh, work as modelers, work as assistants in studios, uh, you know, set up their own independent photography practice or, you know, a lot of sculptors, for instance, have uh, gone into all kinds of very diverse uh, practices, right? And they're not necessarily operating within the network of the gallery space. Right. So, I mean, this is something. So what kind of, uh, you know, support systems can we create? You know, it could be simple things like health insurance. Hmm. I was going to ask about that because I think that was mentioned in one of the workshops that Arnika Ardak did. I think health insurance was brought up. as a Yeah. So, so much of the work that people do in this field is simply dangerous for your health. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so do we do we create some kind of you know uh, you know how do we even because these are things that people don't discuss yeah yeah i was actually looking at cinta and cinta has like uh, these guidelines wherein there's an amount of money that the union gives to people who've lost a family member who you know work film work uh, or you know um, money that might be given in the case of injury by the association I mean, if you look at the mandate of the Lalit Kala Academy, they were supposed to do this, but now there doesn't seem to be any transparency or accountability, yeah. right? Yeah. So we need to uh, push you know, for that. Uh, and then, you know, I was thinking of like how in the states recently there was this whole uh, movement, or uh, you know, within the museum space where museum workers were sharing uh, this, these spreadsheets, you know, uh, which which um, contained information about salaries that they were all getting. So it became a big thing in the United States and a big moment in their, you know, kind of attempts to unionize as culture workers or attempts to deploy transparency. Like, you know, it's so true. Like you, in the Indian art world, you don't know what anyone is getting. I've had so many conversations with, you know, with you know, peers of mine who work in administrative jobs in the gallery space or museum space and nobody knows what the other person is getting everybody's skimping and saving and it's a it's a very strange uh, kind of you know uh, situation where there's no industry standard so for instance this asymmetry of information also creates a situation and it as it does also by the way in the media uh, industry where people don't know how to bargain people don't know how to negotiate because they don't know it's very the lack of transparency is very disempowering very very um study after study after study has shown that the more transparency there is about such issues like salary and income and benefits and uh emolument yeah. <laughs> uh, there's there there's a there's a, a much healthier work environment yeah and people stay longer at at the positions right so yeah i think that's very important um you know so sort of taking off from that um in you know in the middle class imagination in you know the site of violence at the workplace is often limited to the abuse of power in sexual terms and i think that for instance a lot of conversations about in the culture sector and elsewhere about workplace conditions started happening in the wake of me too across the world really but definitely in india uh, as we know the problem of sexual harassment at the workplace is not independent of larger systemic questions of rights and protections due labor which we've been talking about for example against wage discrimination or along other axes um like caste uh, for instance nobody's talking about you know the the implementation of the uh, prevention of atrocities act for example in the workplace uh, it's almost like it's decoupled from the vishakha guidelines or discussions about sexual harassment so as though these things exist in silos so you know i was thinking about like how do you think of things like the icc for example in this context and 
you know, like the fact that, for example, galleries on paper don't even have the requisite number of people to implement the Vishakha guidelines, like they can sort of get away with it. Um, and, you know, questions of contract negotiations or, con or contract development. How do you think of these sorts of problems with in this kind of a sphere? I mean, we've been having this discussion over the past, you know, hour or so, but I think that we need more pointed, uh, you know, linkages to be made between these in seemingly independent kind of sites of aggression. Okay, so I think what you're saying is the focus of, of uh, let me just make sure I get it correct, that the focus of um, of conversations on violence is primarily on sexual harassment. Or has been. And has then, been. Or has been. Yeah. And that has been siloed from other kinds of violence, whether it's um, cognitive violence, I think that's a really huge thing, or um, caste and class violence. And I think these are these are very good points that you raise because I think often sexual harassment is is intensely woven through all these other kinds of violences, or conversely, all these other kinds of violences are part of the infrastructure for sexual violence yeah. and sexual harassment to happen. Right, the conditions and the, the the framework. I think there's a lot that can be done. A lot that can be done. For example. Developing CWST can help with this, I think, in the future as, as, as we progress and mature, is, which is there's things like legislating something, like making something enforceable, but we could also help certain good habits to come into the world, right? Habits are actually really very enduring and they're accepted more easily. The habit of, for example, teachers acknowledging the role of their students in making certain projects possible. Uh, especially at places where project work is central to the pedagogical model, right? Like design schools are are pretty well established in that kind of a model, right? So there is no, uh, in the sciences, uh, of course, there's a lot of work that's being done right now, a very beautiful essay in, um, in EPW from the students of sociology at University of Hyderabad have written about the complexities of mentoring and getting acknowledgement for their research work, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it still needs to be, we, we don't even, our conversation isn't even that far in our, yeah. in our realm. So I think th th those sort of things, and I think uh, I, when I used to, like when I would work in Bombay before, when I've worked in Bombay before, and I don't know if it's the case anymore, but let's say 20 years ago when I worked there, people would look at you weird when you picked up issues of caste. Yeah. Like, what is that? That's something that happens in like Chennai or someplace else. It's not something that happens yeah. in Bombay, right? But over time, this has begun to uh, become a conversation and largely to the credit of people who've um, started, uh, participated in the Dalit movement or even Dalit artists and uh, curators putting together things like what happens when somebody from the Chamar community decides to practice art or make an organization or whatever, right? So these are these are really important uh, uh, questions and I don't think we can avoid them as an organization. So I think we have to make those linkages and that's part of the work that CWSD has to do. Yeah, It really has to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's a question of institutional mechanisms and accountability, right? Once again, to come back to that word. And I think that just the fact that our society is organized in this way, you know, and institutions reflect that. So it's also, when we, you know, we talk about not like this this was one of my problems with the some of the uh, sort of aftermath of the me too movement which in so many ways is embedded to neoliberal and capitalist frameworks right 
So uh, I do want to speak very specifically about uh, the ICC and the sexual harassment uh, laws uh, that uh, you know exist and uh, their applicability or inapplicability in the you know the art world context. Yeah. First and foremost, there is a certain kind of a mindset that exists because of the kind of patriarchal structures within which uh, yeah. most of us have uh, you know uh, kind of grown up. If you look at the art school environment, I like to give people this example of how when Ram Kinkar Bed's retrospective was organized at the National Gallery of Modern Art, and mm-hmm. three prominent artists and critics wrote monographs on him. Uh, Johnny ML, KG Subramanian, and A. Ramachandran. Mm. All of them on the book cover foregrounded the artist model relationship in which the female model was, uh, you know, I mean, so, I mean, for me, it was really interesting to see this, you know, I said, so it tells you immediately about the kind of, uh, you know, uh, gender hierarchies that exist in the art world, right? So, unless and until we keep these conversations alive about how the art world has been constructed, how uh, artworks themselves have been informed through patriarchy, nothing's going to change. So, uh, at the institutional level, uh, ensuring that uh, gender sensitization workshops happen, uh, creating a pool of uh, lawyers who can take forward cases that people might want to register. Uh, that's extremely important for us yeah. as well because some of these will never get resolved unless and until legal measures are, uh, you know, taken. Uh, you know, we saw how uh, with the, uh, you know, M. J. Akbar case. It's only when she decided to step in and stand firm and, uh, you know, uh, ensure that that case uh, went, you know, uh, the way it should. I mean, you had uh, lawyers like uh, Rebecca John stand by this, uh, you know, uh, woman journalist. So these cases will have to be fought. Uh, they will. Uh, I understand that it may be difficult for a lot of people who are uh, not in a position to raise their voice, but the Culture Workers Support Trust wishes to be that kind of uh, supporting platform uh, that uh, will raise its voice against these kind of uh, difficult situations. Uh, but as far as an ICC itself is concerned, unfortunately, the law says that, you know, complaints have to be taken to local committees. Right. Right. And that's also one of the reasons why. And people know that many of these local ICC committees don't really function uh, too well. And that's also the reason why uh, you had the Me Too movement in which complaints were aired in an anon- anonymous fashion. Right. Uh, there was, I mean, that the social media, I mean, you know, people have always complained uh, to each other about uh, misbehavior by others. Uh, and the social media just amplified this, right? And uh, so uh, to ensure that uh, all uh, cultural organizations have uh, the, you know, have uh, acknowledged the Vishaka guidelines and also, uh, you know, uh, convey these to the artists that there are that are associated with them, uh, you know, it's uh, important that everybody knows that these, uh, you know, laws are there in place and that it's important to adhere to them. Uh, we uh, intend to organize to function as a kind of a pressure pressurizing organization, and uh, so you know, it's important to make that noise. It's really important to make a lot of noise when you hear of something uh, that's. Uh, that's uh, that's creating problems. Uh, so I think we yeah. do think of ourselves as an organized as a kind of a uh, 
you know an organization that builds pressure it's a kind of pressure group yeah i was thinking of the sort of statement of support that you put out um at the time of the india art fair when they yeah. removed the works of you know those works that were critical of the government but i mean also like then the question really is how much can one enforce uh, but maybe the pressure group starts really coming into sort of acquiring a kind of force when there are more people involved you know a uh, kind of collective behind it um mass energy one of the problems that i had in the aftermath of the me too movement you know apart from it being embedded to some very problematic structures as well is that interpersonal relationships are not really all justiciable in the traditional sense right you can't litigate interpersonal relationships beyond a point and that's really the problem as well um and that that is that gap is where you know so many people get away with abusing their power because you can't frame all interactions in the language of the law and nor should you be able to in an ideal world right a lot of these are very violent sort of ethical transgressions but they're completely legal so that kind of difference between the ethical and the legal is i think really important to keep to note as well as we go forward you know in terms of in 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 both developing better you know relational hygiene if you like or uh, you know jurisprudence even and again to go back to you know what we were talking about this being a largely unorganized informal sector where it's not always possible to enforce um rules in the traditional sense or policy in the traditional sense a lot of the you know art is made over cups of coffee a lot of curation is done like that uh because someone knows someone or someone um decides to cultivate a relationship with someone and i i think fundamentally uh, somewhere there's also this sense of that there's a sense that the fundamental condition for being a modern artist is to be beyond rules i mean this is maybe going a little bit beyond the scope of what you're saying but i think part of the response to um a highly stratified hierarchical tacit rule bound tacitly rule bound social sphere that we live in is to constantly rebel or dismiss the idea that there's things like ethics and personal relationships yeah that is or, kind of the problem right like basically the, the issue is consent it's yeah, usually, and, and, really and more than really that like consent is the minimum that. like consent is the minimum. is sort of the ne- one necessary condition but it's insufficient you know i mean because once consent happens even to consent to work with yeah. somebody that often sets up the stage for more violence it's not like violence it's complicated yeah it's very complicated and it, and it's also like a lot of these problems can't be resolved in the space of the legal is what the argument is they have to be resolved in the space of the social and the ethical and that's really where yes, the dilemma yeah. is right because you can't yeah. duplicate personal relationships beyond a point it's just human also we don't want the, law, the courts yeah. in our personal we don't right like for instance do you want friendships to be for courts to adjudicate friendships you know uh, by falling outside uh, juridical scope friendships are relationships that are also then outside the purview of the state and the social norms it imposes um and that can be very potent um, and threatening especially in an endogamy based structure like ours you know the state wants to police love and the political possibilities it represents uh, because it's therefore a site of resistance and revolution but of course as we know like that's this you know the toxicity is is what it is and we have to contend with it uh, but i think these are important questions to ask as we try to remedy these problems also right uh, i mean i'm thinking for instance of like 
even the case, you know, the Subodh Gupta case, since you brought up, you know, like intervening in the justice system. I mean, I know that CWST was one of the parties uh, that filed a motion, right, uh, that the case be heard in public interest, uh, which is a very important point to make. But at the same time, once the court issued the order that, you know, you either uh, represent these parties or you make the affected persons uh, part of the suit, you know, th- there was an out-of-court settlement. So then it becomes very difficult to argue for any kind of feminist jurisprudence on how culture workers or un- or unorganized sector workers operate or the kind of protections that they're entitled to. I think what the case actually did was that at least the party who had filed the case of defamation understood that many people in the art world would stand up and say that this is wrong. That it resulted in an out-of-court settlement is something for the party that was accused of defamation to answer for. Uh, we do know, however, that uh, the lawsuit withdrew that one crore uh, defamation demand, mm. right? Or whatever that uh, financial yeah. demand financial that was demand, made yeah. on the person concerned. And also, I think uh, if the person wants, the case can go back to court. That's the kind of loophole that's been left within that case. And I think it was important to make that intervention at that point in time because it was the result of a number of people responding to an email where, you know, we had said that this is insane, you know, so first that outcry. Yeah. That this is wrong because all that was required of a lot of people at that point in time who were in positions of power to just simply acknowledge that bad behavior was something that had been accepted by the art world for far too long and had never been addressed and that you know simply acknowledging some kind of wrong and trying to change one's own behavior at that point in time instead of slapping lawsuits on people would have probably been the appropriate you know what i feel would have been a mature response and that didn't happen Right. I mean, I think that this is a case where you're actually seeing the distinction between the social and the jurisprudential. And here there was a jurisprudential opportunity to effectuate an actual material kind of impact on the lives of people. Of course, you know, that didn't happen. But the fact that the case got the kind of attention that it did um, and also generated the kind of community of support, you know, that that I guess is important as well. I think what was complicated about that was also how would things have been resolved, right? Because you don't have any kind of um, next step once a powerful person is called out, then what? A few year, a few months later, all is forgotten and the people making those uh, allegations are left even more vulnerable. So, you know, that if you're not linking it to the justice system when it matters, then it becomes, then people become even more vulnerable and the, you know, the perpetrators are let off. Nothing happens to them. So I think that 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 is kind of, these are very important questions to think about, like where to make the decision to have a kind of, you know, to to solve the problem within the sphere of the social and where it's necessary to solve it within the space of the juridical. That's what I think. I think that it's important to value all these various spheres for resolution and uh, transformation. And restitution. There are three things, resolution, restitution, and transformation. All these three things matter. And all these spaces should be available for this kind of work. Absolutely. And they're not, you know, mutually exclusive at all. Of course. Absolutely not. And I, 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 for, for that, I really respect the future of CWSD. For that alone, 
if, if um, CWSD can become a space that continually advocates for restitution and resolution and transformation yeah. in culture work, it would be a task that's well worth doing and to be associated with. Yeah. Yes, and I think also this kind of a dichotomy that we see in the kind of uh, positions that people may take in the artworks that they make and what they say through their artworks and then even (laughs) you know museums the kind of artworks that they promote you know it's the artworks always talking about equity and you know a better world and what have you and then what happens to your own behavior I mean, remember the Kochi Biennale scenario, the Kochi Biennale situation where, um, you know, in 2019, the theme was possibilities for a non-alienated life. Uh, and then the company they'd been working with for prior editions as well, Thomas Clary Infrastructures and Developers, served them a scathingly worded legal notice for not paying their workers who had installed the pavilion and, and artworks. Um, and other independent service providers like Masons and Plumbers, etc. also you know, came forward with similar claims. Apparently, there weren't even proper contracts drawn up, just verbal agreements. Um, and, and this was, you know, gallingly in the aftermath of the Kerala floods as well. So local communities were already struggling. You know, now the Biennale, of course, the Biennale Foundation did issue statements to the effect that the contractors had inflated the number that the Biennale owed them and uh, that they weren't directly responsible for paying on-ground workers but you know the reportage at the time was that the previous top manage, top management staff that had previously worked for uh, the foundation had you know they also supported these allegations by the company and and talked about their own challenges while working with the biennale and articles at the time asserted that labor indeed hadn't been paid and that's really um, you know contradictory uh, when one considers the optics of the biennale and its thematic you know commitments and uh, the public positions that it took. So that's why the insurrection that took place, you know, uh, when the guerrilla girls were making their intervention, uh, I thought was a phenomenal moment because everybody in that space stood up and showed solidarity with the Me Too movement. And that happened in the heart of the Kochi Biennale, I think was really important. And uh, in some sense, uh, you know, all the conversations that happened subsequently as well. Yeah, I think it's just that it's important to, you know, create that kind of a platform where we, you know, we engage in self-critical kind yeah. of uh, engagement and look for transformation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said, I, for me, it was, I was just a bit disappointed that, you know, like you have a situation where, yes, you know, people, that's my, this is my critique of, or like a lot of people's critique of the Me Too movement, right? Like it's easy to stand in some sense, it's easier to stand for solidarity with uh, upper caste you know, upper class women, middle class women who, um, you know, have been traumatized, of course, there's no question. But it's also like it's happening at the site where there's a massive labor violation happening. How is nobody linking the two and like having this conversation? Like it's egregious and truly shameful. So, I mean, that, you know. I would like to say that as somebody who was involved with the Students Biennale in Kochi, uh, every single point that you raised has been put down in writing and given to them by me. I'm very glad. Not just about, uh, you know, but the entire spectrum of uh, issues that you've raised. No, I'm sure. And uh, I'm really glad that this uh, organization has sort of uh, emerged in the wake of all of those discussions as well. I, I think I think that's that's a moment of hope I'd like to us to maybe conclude with, which is to say that 
I, I mean, I, I finished my PhD in 2002 and have been working professionally as an art historian uh, since 2001 in, in India. I really feel like the amount of conversations and relatively frank that the yo younger people have started, I'm really, really respectful of that. I mean, there's, there's some serious aggregation of courage happening. <laughs> <laughs> and I really That's love that. Nice I mean, I have a lot. Of, yeah, I think it's 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 really beautiful. I mean, I used to feel a little bit like crazy. Like, doesn't anybody else see this shit? <laughs> and I like. And also, you know, I think you also have to remember that there are a lot of really uh, interesting uh, organizations like the Roundtable, Dalit Camera, etc., that yeah. have come up. And you know, these are uh, you know platforms that have been created to voice. Yeah. Uh, you know, from a certain uh, location, right? Yeah. And uh, and they're doing powerful work. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So um, just wanted to ask, in the context of the pandemic, is the CWST helping organize any mutual aid efforts or community organizing? Community uh, not directly, but we've been trying to help other people organize themselves. So let's, so let's put it this way that uh, when, uh, you know, uh, for example, uh, Art Insight, this organization approached us and they had already approached the Lalit Kala Academy. We've written letters to the Lalit Kala Academy because uh, they are the ones with the largest uh, network. Hmm, hmm. Uh, because we're talking about artists all over the country yeah. you know, to for example when it came to ration distribution uh, you know we uh, thought that that would be the ideal location nodal point for dispersal of uh, say simple things like ration people didn't have ration people didn't have money to pay rent yeah, yeah. you know and uh, again that situation is going to be really bad now that uh, you know uh, we are seeing lockdowns across the country again yeah so uh, that, but uh, so fundraising, I mean, we've had certain technical issues because of which we have not been able to, uh, you know, uh, start. Uh, we don't want to be a kind of a fundraising organization because that uh, is not what we are thinking ourselves to be. Right? Got it. Also, there's, there are some are other organizations who are focusing on the fundraising mm -hmm. um, uh, in the art and the culture work realm. Yeah. Uh, I think what, I think there's a, uh, some benefit to just making sure that the flow of um, of pressure is directed at, at appropriate targets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sounds like some hydraulic activism. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking interest and in having us. Thank you, Kamiani, and all the best with your endeavor. Thank you for tuning into Art Alap with Shukla Savant and Annapurna Garimela, in which we discuss the work of the Culture Workers Support Trust and the complexities and challenges of art labor in India. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and share the episode over social media. For more information and updates, you can follow us on Instagram at art.alap and on Twitter at, at artealaap. Uh, before I go, I uh, want to take a moment to send strength and support to our listeners as we in India battle the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope you and those uh, you care about stay safe during this time. Uh, a reminder too that uh, direct messages on Artalab's social media, Instagram and Twitter are open if you want to share resources, especially if you're an arts and culture organization wanting to spread information about relief initiatives. 